Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today, we're going to talk about what's at stake in these midterm elections on November 8th. I interview Senator Bernie Sanders about how to get young people to vote, his message to those disaffected voters out there to get them to turn out, and his response to those Republicans protecting oil companies while they're ripping off Americans with record profits. And I'm joined by longtime Democratic strategist Simon Rosenberg to discuss Republican efforts to flood the zone with favorable polls and what the early vote totals are telling us so far. I'm Brian Tyler Cohen, and you're listening to No Lie. Okay, well, this is it. This episode is being released on Sunday, November 6th, which means, depending on when you listen to this, we're probably still a few days away from the midterm elections. And we've got two scenarios here. What will happen if Republicans take control of Congress and governorships and state legislatures? And what will happen if Democrats take control? And I want to make this as clear as I can. First, if Republicans take control, they'll pass legislation banning abortion nationwide. They'll pretend that it'll be left up to the states. That is bullshit. Lindsey Graham already introduced a nationwide abortion ban, and he did it weeks before the election, when even voters in Kansas rejected an anti-choice constitutional amendment. If they're willing to introduce that woefully unpopular legislation before the election, just imagine what they're going to do when they don't have to face the voters. And I know a lot of my listeners are in blue states. If there is a nationwide ban, even laws in California and New York won't help, which leads to the inevitable response that Joe Biden will just veto that legislation. And you're right. We have President Biden for now who will veto a nationwide abortion ban. But two places that won't help are A, in the states where Republican legislatures and Republican governors can and will ban abortion. And B, if a Republican Congress is in place, they could refuse to certify any Democratic win in 2024. And so while we have Joe Biden now, if Republicans pull the same shit that Trump pulled in 2020 and they control Congress this time, We could be stuck with an unelected Republican, Trump even, in 2024, who would sign into law a nationwide abortion ban. So this election is where they'll lay the groundwork for that. This election is where they'll set the stage to fix what didn't go their way in 2020. So if you plan on voting in the general in 2024, or you know someone who plans on voting in the general because they always vote in those elections, but aren't really interested in voting in midterms, just know that voting now is what will make your vote count in that election. If Republicans take control, they'll look to eliminate Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. A handful of Republicans have been threatening it for years. Now they're coming out and saying it. Rick Scott, the guy in charge of retaking the Senate for Republicans, he proposed sunsetting all federal legislation after five years. And uh, if it's worth reauthorizing, Congress will purportedly just pass it again. Ron Johnson went a step further, suggesting that everything goes away after one year. This is the pretext to eliminate Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, programs that you've spent your entire life paying into since your very first paycheck. And they'll frame it as some socialist giveaway. It's not. It is your money. You worked for it. You're entitled to it. They want it gone, and they'll make sure it doesn't last if they take power. If Republicans take control, we will lose funding for climate, and instead we'll see subsidies dumped into fossil fuels and dirty energy. We will lose the fight against climate change. <laughs> like I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to say that the future of the planet rests on what happens here without sounding hysterical, but there is no way to say it without sounding hysterical. So at this point, I think we just say it. If you want a habitable planet for your kids or your grandkids, this matters. But let's just say that you're not swayed by the, uh, the environmental argument, that that's too uh, amorphous for you, right? From a jobs perspective, just take a look at what investing in clean energy has led to in just the last few months since the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act were passed. Toyota 
is investing $2.5 billion in manufacturing EV batteries. First Solar is investing $1.2 billion in solar panels. Sparks is building an electric battery factory. Corning is investing $42.5 billion in fiber optic cables. LG and Honda are investing $4.4 billion in EV batteries. Micron is investing $40 billion in chips. Qualcomm, $4.5 billion in chips. Intel, $100 billion in chips. That is hundreds of thousands, if not millions of jobs just right there alone. That's the future. We lose jobs in coal every year. And yet, because that industry is what pays Republicans, that's the only one that they're looking out for. Every year that we're not focusing on clean energy and renewables is another year of billions of dollars of investments lost and millions of jobs sacrificed. Sacrificed to places like China. Republicans will sacrifice every single one of those jobs because they are only looking out for their own. If Republicans take control, there will be no gun safety legislation. Nothing to build on that first gun package passed in 30 years, where states got funding for red flag laws and domestic abusers were blocked from owning guns and background checks were expanded for 18 to 20 year olds. You've all seen the videos of what schools are like now. Mass shooting drills, SWAT teams going classroom to classroom. And instead of doing anything meaningful, Republicans are helping prop up cottage industries selling bulletproof backpacks to kids. Like, what the fuck are we doing? We need common sense gun safety reforms. We need an assault weapons ban, and we need it now. I would ask how many more shootings it'll take before Republicans recognize that, but (laughs) there's no number. The only number they care about is the one on the NRA check. So for the sake of a traumatized generation, do not let these people take power. And, you know, that's to say nothing of what will happen to LGBT Americans who could lose their right to same-sex marriage. It says nothing of losing our rights to contraception, to say nothing of book bans, to say nothing of voting restrictions and continued efforts to gerrymander the states. These people have already broadcast what their priorities are, and they are tailor-made for a small minority of Americans who want a white Christian ethnostate fueled by dirty energy and dark money donors. But with that said, I understand that it's not enough to just say what you're against, that we have to say what we're for. But instead of some theoretical list of policy positions, I'll just say what Democrats did in the last two years with their razor-thin majority. Democrats passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which included the biggest climate investment in history. They allowed the government to negotiate lower drug prices so that we no longer pay 10 times more than everyone else on the planet for the exact same drugs. They capped out-of-pocket healthcare costs for seniors at 2000 bucks a year, insulin at $35 a month. They imposed a 15% corporate minimum tax onto billion-dollar companies that pay nothing. They beefed up IRS enforcement solely to catch ultra-rich tax cheats. Passed the CHIPS Act to finally make semiconductor chips, which are used in everything from phones to EVs right here in the U.S., which, as I mentioned before, already has led to countless companies investing billions of dollars and adding tens of thousands of jobs. They passed the PACT Act, giving health care to sick veterans. Forgave student loan debt for 43 million borrowers. Passed an infrastructure package that'll upgrade roads and bridges and ports and waterways and add EV charging stations across this entire country. They passed the first gun safety law in three decades, pardoned all federal offenses for simple marijuana possession, and started the process of removing cannabis from the list of Schedule I drugs like heroin. Passed the American Rescue Plan that gave us all free COVID vaccines and tests and kept our states and localities and businesses and, yes, even police departments funded when everything else was shut down from COVID. They passed legislation funding baby formula, which Republicans voted against. Passed legislation preventing price gouging at the pump, which Republicans voted against. Passed legislation codifying same-sex marriage, which Republicans voted against. Passed legislation protecting birth control, which Republicans voted against. Passed legislation codifying Roe, which Republicans voted against. Again, I'm not here to make some nebulous argument about what the Democrats will or won't do or what the Republicans will or won't do based on, like, vibes. This is all based on what the parties have done. Don't listen to what these people say. Watch what they do. So I'll just end with this. If, if you've spent the last few years engaged, then first off, thank you. And second, please take the hour or so that it takes to vote. 
And more importantly, since I'm talking to an audience that's already engaged and probably really likely to vote already, find people who didn't vote in 2020, people who might have just turned 18 or 19 or or even people who voted Republican in the past uh, who recognize now that women should have the right to make their own choice on what they do with their own body. Find those people and bring them with you. Help them make a plan to vote. You might have heard me say this before, but in Wisconsin, Biden won the 2020 election by three votes per precinct. That's all. Had Trump flipped just three votes per precinct, he'd have won that state. It doesn't take much to win these elections. Christy Smith, running in California's 27th, lost her election by 333 votes in 2020. So please do your part, find your people, and let's continue building on the good work that we've done so far. Next up is my interview with Bernie Sanders. Very proud to introduce today's guest, U.S. Senator from Vermont, Bernie Sanders. Thank you so much for taking the time. Ryan, my pleasure to be with you. Now, you've spent the last week out on a Get Out the Vote tour. Since you've been on the road, what's been your biggest takeaway from the tour? And do you feel like the enthusiasm matches up to 2018 and 2020 when Democrats were able to secure major victories? Uh, well, you know, this is a midterm election, and I think there are a lot of folks out there who really don't appreciate how important this election is and how consequential uh, it is. But we had really good turnouts uh, in Oregon and in California and Texas. Uh, and I think people are beginning to catch on that if you are concerned about uh, the need for a woman to control her own body, this election is important. If you're concerned about climate change and, and leaving a planet to our kids, which is habitable, this election is very important. If you're concerned about maintaining American democracy, this election is important. And it's also important uh, for a whole lot of economic reasons in that if Republicans gain control over the House and the Senate, there will be really an assault on the needs of working families. So. Uh, Brian, this is a really, really important election, and I hope uh, that people come out and vote in large numbers. Obviously, one major contingent of that is young people, and that's a constant point of concern whether they'll show up to vote. Um, I believe that millennials like myself and Gen Zs now make up the biggest voting block, but we still vote in lower numbers than older generations. Right. Uh, what's your message to young people who feel like the government isn't working for them? Well, first of all, your point about lower turnouts among young people is, is sadly true. And it's kind of ironic because the decisions the government make right now are going to impact your generations for decades to come. Uh, and furthermore, what is what bothers me a lot is that the younger generation, people under 40, 45, are the most progressive generations that we have ever seen in the history of this country. These are generations that are anti-racism, they're anti-sexism, anti-homophobia. And these are folks out there that in many ways are experiencing a lower standard of living than their parents. The economy is not working for them. They have huge student debts. They can't afford housing. The wages they earn are, are not particularly good. So politics should be of enormous importance to those generations. And we've got to make sure that they understand what the stakes are. So my hope is that if you are concerned, as young people are, about the existential threat of climate change, you know, this is not some abstract idea. What kind of planet are your kids and grandchildren going to have? You should be concerned about it, and young people are. Whether you're concerned about gay rights or women's rights, you should be concerned about it, and the younger generation is. And whether we have an economy that works for all or just a few, 
should be of concern to everybody. So I really do hope that, you know, I, I know that a midterm election is not as sexy as a presidential election, right? Presidential election, all the media is talking about this guy and that guy. You have debates and all that stuff. But trust me, who controls the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House is of enormous consequence. Please vote. Now, there are progressives out there who supported you and who do feel like the Democrats didn't go far enough this cycle. You know, I have I have friends myself who, who kind of lost confidence in politics when when you didn't win or or as big oil con- continued to, to retain its power or as big banks continued to consolidate and, and on and on. Um, I'm certain that's something that you've heard about, uh, you know, especially since you've been out on this uh, this tour yourself. How do you keep those people in the fold? Like, how do you how do you how do you bring back the disaffected folks who you've always had a unique ability to communicate with? Hey, guess what? I am disaffected. You know, and I'm a United States senator. I'm chairman of the budget committee. I am disaffected. You're unhappy with how the Democrats function. I'm more unhappy with how the Democrats function. But in the real world, you got to take a look at where we are at this moment. And that is clearly we need major reforms in the Democratic Party. And that's what I've been fighting for for years. We need a party that represents working people, that believes in economic justice, social justice, racial justice, that does not take huge amounts of money from corporate PACs. All right. That's what we need. Are we there today? No, we are not. Have we made progress in recent years? Yes, we have. And let me just say this. If you're kind of demoralized out there, understand. There will be more strong progressives in the U.S. House of Representatives come this coming January than there's ever been in the modern history of this country. That's real. And you made it happen. But, you know, politics and life just is, you know, this is not a question of instant gratification here. Yeah. You know, there were people, you know, whether it was Martin Luther King Jr. or others who struggled for decades for racial justice, women who died in the suffragettes movement, fighting for a women's right to vote. Real change does not happen overnight. We have to continue to struggle. But I do want all of those people to say, well, you know, Democrats are not good enough. And that's true. That's true. I want you to look at the alternatives. Do you really want a political party in power that is trying to undermine American democracy that is maintaining this big lie that Trump won the election? Do you know what that means? Democracy is at stake. Get involved. Do you really want a party out there that does not believe that women should be able to control their own bodies? I don't think you do. So I'm not here to tell you. I'm the last guy on earth to tell you that the Democrats are doing what they should be doing. They're not. We got to reform the Democratic Party, make it stronger, make it more aggressive in standing up to big money interests, fighting for Medicare for all, canceling student debt, making public colleges and universities tuition uh, free making sure that we end this dysfunctional healthcare system, you know, so that all people have healthcare as a human right, et cetera, et cetera. But you got to get out and vote and we have to defeat Republicans uh, next Tuesday. Shell posted nine and a half billion dollars in profits this quarter. Chevron posted $11 billion in profits. ExxonMobil, almost $20 billion in profits. What's your message to these oil companies that have opted to fleece Americans for record profits, all doing so under the guise of inflation? Well, Brian, what they are doing is absolutely outrageous. And my Republican colleagues are helping them do it. Look, first of all, you know, when Republicans talk about inflation, 
Inflation is a very serious issue. It's 8.2% in the United States. People are having a hard time filling up their gas tanks uh, when they go to the service station. They're having a hard time buying the food they need, the prescription drugs they need, the health care that they need. It is a real serious problem for working families. What are the causes of inflation? Well, for a start, did Joe Biden do it all by himself? And, and why is it that in Europe, inflation is at 11%? Think that's Joe Biden's fault? In the UK, it's at 10.1%. And it is higher in many parts of the world than it is in the United States. And the reason for that is that the pandemic has resulted in the breakdown of supply chains. That's one, number one. The horrific war in the Ukraine, number two. And as you've just indicated, the major reason for inflation today, my Republican colleagues won't talk about this in a million years, is the outrageous level of corporate greed we are now seeing. You indicated some of the record-breaking profit margins that the oil companies are seeing. You could do the same with the pharmaceutical industry. You could do the same with the healthcare industry. You could say do the same with major food companies. What these guys are doing, and you know, think about it from a moral perspective. You got a world in turmoil, the war, the pandemic, some breakdown in supply chains. And these guys, instead of saying, my God, what can we do to stabilize things, help working people keep prices low, right? Might be a good thing to do. What they see is, wow, all of this confusion out there, people won't notice it. We can rip them off unconsciously. Let's go for it. Raise prices. The hell with working families. Hell with the elderly. They don't, don't, don't worry about them. Let's just pay attention to our stockholders. And that really stinks. And in my view, what we need to do is institute a windfall profits tax on this excessive greed. That's my view. Now, you you touched on the, the Republican response to this. You know, what, what do you say to these Republicans who basically enabled these oil companies to do that because they were pretending that high prices were were like you said all joe biden's fault basically scapegoating the democrats uh and at the same time giving these oil companies cover to screw over america you got it that's exactly what is happening i want to say something else you know when you're in my line of work you you read through dog whistles and code terms right so republicans are saying the real cause of inflation in america despite the fact that it's an international phenomenon The real cause is government spending under the Democrats. What they're talking about, frankly, is the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan that we passed in March 2021. Now, I'm the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee. I played an active role in passing that bill. And you know what, Brian? I apologize to nobody for passing that bill. Let us remember where we were. I know sometimes people have short memories. March. 2021, we had a pandemic sweeping the nation. 3,000 people every single day were dying. We were in the midst of the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. Millions of people lost their jobs, worried about eviction. Hunger was higher than it had been for decades. So I'm not going to apologize that we gave every American, man, woman, and child, 1,400 bucks to get through that crisis that we extended unemployment benefits, that we expanded the child tax credit, that we made sure that hospitals in America that were overwhelmed with COVID patients did not collapse. Now, on the other hand, that's what we did. On the other hand, you know what the Republicans want to do if they get power? They want to repeal the estate tax. 
which applies to the top one-tenth of one percent. Elon Musk's family would have an $80 billion benefit from that tax. Is that really where we want to go? And then on top of that, because they give so much in tax breaks to the rich, they want to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. So the choice is, I think, pretty clear uh, for next Tuesday. As a segue right right off of that, you know, we've been subjected to months of these Republican attacks about inflation and gas prices and the economy. Um, but what Republicans are trying to do by virtue of levying these attacks is to give the impression that they're going to be the responsible stewards of all of those things. What do you tell people who think that the way to combat high prices and get some economic relief is by electing Republicans? If you are a Republican or an independent or maybe even a Democrat thinking of voting Republican, you just ask yourself, do you think that the future should be giving massive, we're talking about $1.75 trillion in tax breaks to a few thousand of the wealthiest families in America? And do you think really the future in combating inflation is to cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and other programs. I don't think most Americans think that. I think what most Americans want us to do, which the Republicans will never do, is to have the courage to take on the pharmaceutical industry, which now charges us in some cases 10 times more for the prescription drugs we buy than in any other country. What the American people want us to do is lower the cost of childcare in America, which is now outrageously high. They want to make public colleges and universities tuition free to help struggling students be able to get the higher education that they need. So I think when you, you know, it's very easy if you're a Republican out there, they're very easy. What they're doing is there are problems. They're talking about the problems. Well, you know what? Real problems exist. Those problems are real. But then when you kind of corner them, you say, what's your solution? Yeah. You think cutting Social Security is really the way we have to go? Yeah. Well, then they get a little bit defensive. So I think Democrats have got to get on the offensive and take it to them. Rick Scott had come out with a plan to sunset all federal legislation after five years. Um, and uh, if it's worth keeping, then Congress will uh, purportedly re, uh, you know, reauthorize it. Ron Johnson one-upped him and said basically that all federal legislation should be reauthorized every year. What does that mean for the programs that you had just spoken about for Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security? It means they're on the uh, chopping block. I mean, that's basically what it means. Either we believe that seniors in this country are entitled to social security. And in my view, by the way, we should expand social security benefits by lifting the cap on income. As you know, right now, somebody who makes 140,000 a year pays the same amount into social security in taxes as somebody who makes $10 million. That's absurd. So we should expand social security benefits for the elderly. Uh, We should move from Medicare for the elderly to Medicare uh, for all. But the bottom line is what Republicans are saying, and they've always said this, is that programs, government programs that help working families, and it's not just Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, it's federal aid, it's education, it's environmental protection. Those are programs that they don't want, and they are going to go after all of those programs if they have a majority in the House and the Senate. Yeah. And, and I say this every week with everybody I speak to, but, you know, we ignore these things at our own peril because the same people who were uh, promising us that nothing was going to happen to Roe are now the same people promising us that nothing's going to happen to Medicare, Medicaid and Social Security. No, I mean, I got to give them credit, actually. They have been more honest than usual. 
You got a bunch of them, something like 150 members in the House who have made it clear that they are willing, by the way, to uh, allow the United States the default on our debt payments if they are unable to cut Social Security and Medicare. So they're pretty overt about it. And, you know, you are right that people may not take them seriously, but these are the guys who came within one vote of repealing the Affordable Care Act a few years ago, you recall that, which would have thrown 30 million people off the health insurance they have. These are the guys who, when they had the power, gave huge tax breaks to the wealthiest people in this country. These are serious people. They are focused. And their goal is massive tax breaks for the rich, cuts in programs for the elderly, the children, working families, low-income people. That's what they want to do. And, you know, they're pretty upfront about it. Our job is to make sure that they don't get away with that. So with that said, if we're able to expand our Senate majority by two seats and we're able to hold the House, what happens in January of 2023? Well, I'm not much into predictions, predictions, but I will tell you what I will do. I think we have got to recognize that the American people are angry. And Brian, they are angry for good reasons. Uh, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but real inflation adjusted for wages today are lower than they were 50 years ago, despite huge increases in worker productivity. Meanwhile, while working families are struggling, the billionaire class is growing night and day. During the pandemic alone, they saw a $2 trillion increase in their wealth. Today, we have more income and wealth inequality than any time in the history of America. You know that? I, I don't know that many people know it. You got three people who own more wealth than the bottom half of American society. So I think what Democrats have got to do is say, look, we have got to have the courage for once in our lives to take on the incredible power of the banks, the insurance companies, the drug companies, the fossil fuel industry. This is not easy because as we're seeing right now, these guys have unlimited amounts of money. They're running all these, you know, super PACs and 30 second ads. But if we want to restore faith in democracy and the government can work for working people, that is what we have to do. And as you know, chairman of the budget committee, that is what I will be doing. Now, we're a few days out from the election, obviously from election day, uh, but people are already voting. There's a lot of tension about what our closing message should be. And granted, Republicans have de- given Democrats you know, a ton, a ton of options from attacks on democracy to supporting authoritarians abroad. Uh, abortion rights, threatening Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, coddling the rich, ignoring climate change, and on and on. You've always been consistently on message uh, with economic issues, probably the most on-message person that we have on the left. How do you reconcile closing with an economic message if it means sleeping on some other major issues like abortion and attacks on democracy? No, 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 Brian. It's not a question of sleeping on. The right of women to control their own bodies, to me, is fundamental. It is enormously important. And what can we say about the importance of preserving American democracy? And what can you say about whether or not we continue to have a planet which allows people to live in a healthy way? I mean, these are enormously important issues, so there's no pushing them aside. But what I am saying is if you are a, a candidate out there, politician, and you're talking to ordinary people, you have got to recognize Many people, 60% of our people live in paycheck to paycheck. They go into the grocery store and they say, my God, you know, prices are going up. I can't afford to buy the food I need to feed my families. I can't afford rent. 
rent is soaring many parts of this country. I can't afford healthcare. Healthcare costs are going up. Prescription drug costs are going up. You cannot ignore that. So I'm not saying turn your back on abortion or climate or democracy. Of course, you got to focus on those issues. But you also have to understand that in poll after poll after poll, they say to the American League, what are the most important issues facing you? People say economics. I'm not making enough to, you know, to live the way that I want to live and inflation. You got to deal with those issues. You can't push them aside. Let's end with this. What's the first thing you're going to do after election season's over? Well, take a break. <laughs> yeah. Rest for a few days. Yeah. But the, then we have the uh, midterm elections. And as chairman of the budget committee, uh, I have some responsibilities that I'm going to have to deal with. Great. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for taking the time. And, uh, and you know, best of luck out there on that tour. And uh, thank you for what you're doing. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Brian. Now we've got longtime Democratic strategist and a member of the team that helped flip the House in 2018 with DCCC, Simon Rosenberg. Thanks so much for taking the time. It's really great to be here. It's a thanks for all that you do. Well, you've been my go-to for all information polling in this pre-election period. So thank you for being a source of good information uh, amid the hellscape that is Twitter these days. <laughs> um, so now let's let's jump into it. You've argued that Republicans have flooded the zone with bogus polls. Um, can you speak on what's happening here? Like, just give a lay of the land. Yeah, listen, I think that there's the big question this election always was, would the strong Democratic overperformance that we saw in the five House specials and in Kansas earlier this year, would that carry over to the general election? <laughs> and I think importantly, it is carrying over. And, and we know that in two ways. One is that the early vote is very, very strong, frankly, stronger than I think we could have anticipated. We're overperforming 2020 nationally. We're overperforming you know, in many, many of the most important states and in some of the states like Michigan and Pennsylvania and Georgia and Wisconsin, uh, we're overperforming by a huge amount, meaning that we're doing better than would have been reasonably expected um, in this election in those states. And the second thing is we're also overperforming in the in the poll in the legitimate polling in the independent media polls not the partisan polls on both sides but the independent high quality media polls like Marist the New York Times um, in and and the Nevada you know in Nevada the independent the polls that people sort of look to and that are important we're doing we're doing really well actually <laughs> particularly in the Senate races I mean we just had a rash of polling come out from Marist which is one of the most respected pollsters in the country showing us in very comfortable leads in Arizona and Pennsylvania and very close in, in Georgia. And every time those polls come out, it is, it is, a, it is the, and also the early vote, it contradicts the red wave narrative. The, the, we can only be in a red wave if all the data everywhere was pointing in the same direction. A wave means that it's universal, it's happening across the country. And we know now that we have data showing that it's not happening, actually. We know the early vote data shows that it's not happening, right? And so I don't think there, there could be a red wave on election day, but it hasn't shown up yet. And I think what the Republicans did is that, you know, they were having, they were getting a lot of pressure from their donors. You know, they're having to compete in states like, you know, um, Iowa and North Carolina and Ohio, which they never thought they'd be competing in at this late. And I think that in a moment of sort of desperation, they decided to flood the zone with a lot of, you know, plus three, plus four Republican polls that have shifted the averages and helped them create this narrative that the election is shifting at the end when there's actually a lot of compelling data showing that's actually not happening, right? And so I think that's what's going on. I mean, this is the kind of stuff they do all the time, but it's just never been done at this volume 
And, and with this many polls in this many states by this many different pollsters, it's clearly an orchestrated campaign to gain the polling averages. Well, I would ask as a follow up to that, like, so what? You know, what's the significance of that? Is it is it that they're trying to discourage Democrats from showing up by making it look like a lost cause? I think it's both that they wanted to buck up their team, because I'll tell you, a be imagine being a Republican political operative when you were supposed to win the House by 60 seats and that this was going to be a blowout election and you're working, 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 and you're just not seeing that in your actual work. And yeah. the donors are calling you and saying, what's, you know, why are you guys screwing up? How can you can't be beating that old Biden guy? Right. They're under unbelievable pressure not to lose. If these guys lose, they're going to be, you know, they're going to be disgraced in their business because this was like a layup election that they can't win. So there's just incredible internal pressure on the Republicans to make it feel better than it is. And so I think that one, this was done for voter enthusiasm on their side, for fundraising, for, and it's also some of this LOL, you know, shits and giggles stuff, right, yeah. that conservatives do that, you know, let's see if we can game the polling averages and manufacture a red wave narrative to suppress Democratic turnout, to create more negative sentiment in the Democratic world, to turn all the press against them. Um, and I think that it's all of that. I mean, I think it's all of that. And I, and I think that what's the problem is we just keep getting more and more data showing that it's not happening. And I think I've had some limited ability to break through in the national media on this, but I think that they've been successful in basically conditioning and, and BSing their way with the national media into declaring a red wave is here when in fact it isn't. Well, not to give any, any free advice to, to Republican strategists and pollsters, but one thing that they might want to consider is, uh, is not taking stances that 70% of Americans uh, disagree with and stripping women of their bodily autonomy uh, right. a, a few weeks before the election. Yeah. So, you I'm, know, just, I'm with uh, you. just for starters. I think I'm with you on that one. No, yeah. no question. You know, you look at these at the trend in these polls and what we've seen since 2016 is kind of a, a Democratic bias that undercounts the number of Republicans who've tended not to answer polling yeah. questions because because of of decreased trust in establishment media, among a number of reasons. Yeah. Um, so in a way, isn't flooding the zone with Republican weighted polls actually to some small degree a fix for this pro-Democratic bias? It's a great question. I really appreciate the thoughtfulness of that question. And here's, here's my answer. The polls weren't wrong in 2016, but they changed at the end. And in fact, because of the FBI intervention in the election, and then the polls, you know, Hillary collapsed when that happened. We know that, right? And so I don't, I'm a believer that the poll bias you're talking about really only manifested in 2020. It wasn't there in 2016. It wasn't there in 2018. And so I do think that you're right that the entire kind of political ecosystem in, in national politics has been terrified of replicating that undercounting of Republican votes that happened, the shy Republican voter. It's possible, though, that everybody went too far and that they're actually missing this cycle that the energized vote is actually on our side. And if you look at what happened in those five House special elections, there was no poll showing that movement and that you know, there's no poll that was done in any of those races that predicted those outcomes. We overperformed all the polling. And I'll give you an example. In New York 19, in the House special, um, there were 10 public polls done. None of them showed us winning. Data for Progress, a Democratic firm, had us losing by 10 points. Yeah. The DCCC's own internal polling had us losing three to four points, and we won by two and a half points. And so, you know, in, in what his actual voting and not polling, 
we've overperformed. And we're seeing that same overperformance showing up in the early vote. And it's why, you know, I would still rather be us than them when it comes to this election. Well, with that said, let's get into the actual votes and the actual election right now. Can you give a snapshot of what their early vote data are saying? Like this is being recorded, you know, for, for viewers and listeners right now, this is being recorded on Friday for a Sunday release. So I, you know, I say this with two caveats. One is that polls are only a snapshot of, of, of the past and there may be new snapshots by the time you read this. And also um, you may be listening to this when we already have winners. So. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and it's, and so, and it's a great caveat to your audience that things may change right in the next couple of days, but the early vote data has actually been remarkably consistent over 10 days. I don't expect it going to change very much. Right now, as of today, we're up 50 to 40. So, you know, by 10 points, that's two points better than where it was in 2020. So we're overperforming 2020 by two points. We have 3.2 million more votes than the Republicans do at this point, which is a lot. You know, it means that we're going to be going into election day with a potentially, you know, four to five million vote lead, which you would rather be us than them again, right? And then in many of the most important states, as I said earlier, in places like, um, you know, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, you know, we have huge, uh, uh, we have huge performance, way above 2020, 10, 15, 20 points above 2020. And that's in part because, you know, I think what you have to recognize when you look at the battlegrounds Senate races, you know, we're doing very well in the polling there. The early votes, very strong. We have spent a lot of money in those states, right? We have built massive field organizations. We've done a lot of ads. We have very strong candidates. These are also states that tend to have sort of strong parties underneath them, long, traditionally strong parties. So you're seeing our early vote grassroots campaign really produce extraordinary results. We are pushing the numbers up on purpose. This was a plan, right? This was a strategy and it's working, right? We should feel really good about it. But we're also up by smaller numbers in places like Arizona and Washington and Texas. And, and, and let me say one last thing is that what's important about for your, for your listeners is that in the last week, everything's actually gotten better. While supposedly the election is bottoming out for us, according to the national media, the early vote has actually improved by two points nationally for us. And we've seen really meaningful improvement in four important states, in Washington, in Arizona, North Carolina, and Texas. We've seen substantial five or six point movements towards us just in the last few days. So the early vote is actually getting better every day now. And so I'm optimistic because I think, look, our we couldn't go door to door in 2020, right? That was a tool that was not available to us. This is a core organizing tool. And I think now that we've been able to restore our traditional way of talking to our voters, our lower propensity voters, you're seeing that it's actually yielding, you know, significant results. And so it's why I remain, I will tell you that if we, if you had asked me, if you, if I looked at this data two or three months ago, I would say there's no way we're going to be where we are now. This is too good. And so I think we have to be really optimistic about what we're seeing. Here's what I think is going to happen, right? We knew they were going to vote a lot. The question was, were we going to vote a lot? Was the anti-MAGA majority that showed up in such big numbers in the last two elections, were we going to show up again? So far, we have reasons for optimism about that. Are there any worries, though, that because early voting versus election day voting has become so politicized that the early vote data isn't necessarily like a harbinger for a big Democratic turnout? It's, it's just that we're going to see all of our Democrats vote early and all of the Republicans vote on election day. It's just like another indicator of partisanship. 
No, I, I have a slightly different take. I mean, it, we'll, we'll see, by the way. You could be right, and we'll find out. We'll find out in a couple days. But it's more, I think what's more accurate is it's an it's a indication of intensity. Just in the way that our candidates have raised more money than their candidates. We overperformed in Kansas and in the five House specials. We saw a huge spike in Democratic registration after Dobbs. All of these indicators of intensity are all pointing in the same direction, which is that we're the party that's bringing intensity to the vote right now. And the Republicans aren't, right? Their candidates didn't raise a lot of money. Their voter reg stuff really dropped off after Dobbs, right? They did really poorly in all those elections. And so where we head into election days, you'd rather be us than them here. And also just to make sure people understand, when you move your early voters, you know, your prime voters to vote early, that means you free up the entire grassroots organization to turn out lower propensity voters. And so we're now going to be talking to lower propensity voters to go get them to vote for a week. The Republicans are going to be talking to them for a day, right? It's this strategy that we've employed is a better strategy than what the Republicans are doing. It's much better to move people into early voting than to wait to election day. And so it's another reason why I'm optimistic. And I think it's one of the reasons you're seeing our numbers moving in the right direction is that we're starting to hit lower propensity voters now and turning them out. And, and um, which is a sign, it's really important because in a midterm election, you have more people who are just not sure if they're gonna vote. And so our ability to have this extra tool to go reach these lower propensity voters is really uh, a, a powerful strategic and tactical advantage we have going into the final days. Yeah, that, that's, I'm so glad that you brought that up. I would also add that um, you being able to vote early frees up, frees up time on election day. So all of those long lines that we hear yep. about, those four, five, six, seven, eight hour lines that we're hearing about in yeah. Georgia, Every, every time that you submit a ballot early, that's another five minutes saved at the, uh, at the yep. polling place. So Yeah, and it makes our elections work more smoothly. To your point, I mean, there's been so much challenge to the system. I mean, it's amazing. It's, so, it's such an affirmation for the United States that so many people are voting early. It's such a sign of the health of our democracy and people going. And, and, and it makes it easier to count the votes. It makes it far less likely there's any kind of election day disruption. So, you know, voting early is just good. And any of you who haven't voted, who can vote early, please do before election day, right? Some of you still have the opportunity to vote early. Do it. It makes every it makes it more likely we win and it makes more likely the elections run smoothly on election day. Perfectly put. Are you worried about California at all? Because California doesn't have any big, sexy Senate race to to help drive turnout. So, you know, we have a lot of important house races like Christy Smith and Will Rollins and uh, Mike Levin, Katie Porter. Yeah, I am worried about California. I don't know enough about what's happening in the early vote turnout in those House races. I, I now need to realize I need to go look, and I haven't done it. But I think the way to think about this is there's sort of three different elections happening simultaneously right now in the United States. We don't have a single nationalized election. The Democrats actually didn't want the election to be nationalized around Biden, and, and I don't think the Republicans successfully nationalized it. And so one election is what's happening in the Senate battlegrounds where we're doing really well and we should feel really good about where we are. The second, though, are places like Rhode Island and New York and California and Oregon where MAGA is not a threat. There's really no Republican Party in these places and some of the issues around quality of life and urban chaos and so on have sort of taken on more of a life of their own. Also, people frustrated with COVID, Democrats are in charge. And so I think in those states, we could see some underperformance. I mean, certainly we're seeing it in New York and Oregon and California right now, the early vote's a little off and, and we have to be worried about that. The third though ele elect, uh, election we should be looking at are states in the Midwest and Texas where 
MAGA is a threat, where abortion is, is under threat, where the abortion extremism is in play. And, you know, like what we saw in Kansas, right? Texas is doing, the early vote is very strong for us there. The early vote is very strong for us in Indiana and in Iowa. And we're even a little bit ahead in Kansas. And so there could be some surprises in some of those red states or the Midwest, you know, that like we saw in Kansas a few months ago, that no one's counting on. Certainly the fact that Donald Trump had to go to Iowa yesterday on Thursday to campaign for Grassley this late in the race it's just an incredible sign that they are just not where they want to be. That's not red wavy, as we would say, yeah. right? That's that's a sign of, you know, that they're worried about this kind of winning in core Republican states. That's the opposite of a red wave. I'm going to put you on the spot here. What's your yeah. uh, what's going to be your surprise election night result? Oh, I think they're going to be a lot. I mean, I think the House races are so close that I don't know. I don't know if that I don't think we should be surprised by surprises, maybe is the right way to Think about it. I mean, this is, election is there so, one like underdog candidate that that everyone else has written off? I'm I'm really fascinated. I'll tell you the two races I'm I'm sort of most fascinated by, and we're going to get data on it earlier: Ohio and North Carolina. I mean, if if we're really close in those races, you know, late into the night, the Republicans are going to be have a bad night. And and I and I don't, you know, I think that those are probably really important bellwethers, more so even than like Georgia and, and Pennsylvania. I mean, obviously, you know, we're going to, I mean, because there are a lot of really important East Coast races, we're going to have a lot of data pretty early, you know, in in, in the, and, and for those um, states that can count the uh, the early vote and the mail ballots before election day, you know, we're going to get a lot of data. Some of the states, they can't, right? And so, um, you know, we're going to um, we're going to know a lot about this election pretty early. I mean, Georgia, Pennsylvania, New York, you know, we're going to have East Coast data coming in early. But we also have a lot of West Coast races that are really close. I mean, Nevada, you know, Western races, Nevada, Arizona, right? Um, California, as you mentioned, Oregon. This is going to be a very late night. And I guess I'm most intrigued by North Carolina and Ohio. I, I just think everyone in our side kind of wrote them off. And they're hanging in there. McConnell's spending a lot of money in the final week, meaning that they don't think it's in the bag. And, um, you know, we should be really, again, I think all of us should go to realize, if I can say one really important thing, nobody thought we had a shot in this election. The fact that we're this close, this late, that our candidate, that the grassroots of our party have raised so much money for our candidates, that we're seeing unprecedented success in the early vote, um, you know, it's really a testament to the grit and resilience and, and ambition and passion of the Democratic Party. I mean, I'm so proud of our party right now. I'm so proud of the people who've worked to make this possible. It's really an incredible achievement. Whatever happens on Election Day, we should be really, really proud and we should end this race uh, on an up note and really go fight like hell in the final days and bring it home for, the, for us, for our candidates and for the country. Really well said. I want to I want to end with with one more yeah. thing. Um, can you just speak for a moment about youth turnout and what we're seeing yeah. uh, just from the early numbers so far? Yeah, I, I think we don't know yet. I mean, I, I well, let me put it differently. What we know is that the electorate at this point is much older than it was in 2020, and we're still doing really well, <laughs> right? Which is which is incredible. I mean, I did some calculations on this this morning. And the electorate is like nine uh, of the under 50 vote, which I'm going to put as youth. I know people may laugh at that, but yeah, it's just, just, it, it, just it, us it, kids under 50. I know, uh, under 50. But there really is a break, though, between sort of late 40s and younger and then 
old, late 40s and older, there's a, there's a huge kind of cultural break in there, right? It's essentially people that came of age, you know, after the, the Cold War and after uh, Reagan and Bush and Clinton. I mean, the people that came of age after Clinton basically are much more democratic, right? And yeah. so um, we, what we know is that the electorate today is about nine percentage points less under 50 than it was at this point two years ago. It's kind of incredible. We're about four to five points less under 50 than we were in 2018. What we believe is that based on the Harvard IOP data, that the young, young 18 and 29 year olds are intending to vote at the same level or higher than 2018. Um, but it's gonna be late voting and, and young people tend to vote late. It's what happened in 2018 and 2020. Um, and I think that there is some evidence. I was talking to Tom Bonnier about this this morning, and he's actually going and crunching the numbers now. And if we get this, I'll put it up on my Twitter feed, is that I told him that I thought that the, that the under 50 vote a week ago was 18% of the electorate, now it's 23%. If that's true, and I don't have access to that data, he's got to go pull it, that means that we're starting to see a significant uptick of younger people coming into the electorate, and, and it should be encouraging. It's particularly young women, by the way, right? I mean, I think the heroes of this election for us may be, you know, Gen Z and millennial women um, yeah. at the end of the day, and uh, who were the heroes in Kansas and in some of the House specials. And you've seen the huge voter registration spike that we've seen since Dobbs has been disproportionately young women. And, and what Tom will tell you is that New registrants who vote, who register in the year of an election, almost always vote. They have an unbelievably high level of participation, and so we have tens and tens of thousands of new female voters that uh, are young who are going to be also, I assume, be bringing all their friends to the polls and become a yeah. powerful magnet, right, to increase turnout for us. And so, you know, I, I think as Tom has been saying in his own writing. The big wild card left in this election is what happens to young people. And if they turn out in large numbers, we're going to have a great midterm. If they don't, we may be disappointed. Simon, how can we uh, hear more from you? Yeah, Simon WDC on Twitter. I tweet far too much, just have to warn you in advance. And um, that's really the best way. I, also, my website, ndn.org, but I'm not really writing anything other than Twitter right now. Um, and uh, I also have... Um, I will promote the heck out of this podcast. I appreciate it. And I should say that I'm also hosting, co-hosting for through probably the end of the year, Deep State Radio podcast with David Rothkopf. We do every Thursday an election-oriented uh, pod. We had Cecile Richards talking about women and youth voting yesterday. I do it with Tara McGowan and and David. It's a fun podcast. Not as good as yours, obviously, but, but it's uh, pre pretty good. And um, that's another place where you can check in with our work. But awesome. listen, everybody, just big thank you for, you know, being big citizens for, you know, giving a crap enough to even watch a show like this and take time out of your day. And, you know, just make sure that whatever you're going to do to help contribute to our win on Tuesday, you just do more of it between now and Election Day. Uh, but the single most important thing you can do, if you can, is to vote early. That's the single most critical act you can take between now and Election Day. We'll leave it there. Simon, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. And thank you for yeah. all the work you do. Again, I would highly recommend people watching and listening. Definitely go follow Simon. Thanks so much. Good luck, everybody. Thank you. Thanks again to Simon. That's it, guys. Please go vote. Let's bring this home, and I'll talk to you next week. 
You've been listening to No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen, produced by Sam Graber, music by Wellesley, interviews captured and edited for YouTube and Facebook by Nicholas Nicotera, and recorded in Los Angeles, California. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your preferred podcast app. Feel free to leave a five-star rating and a review, and check out briantylercohen.com for links to all of my other channels. Thank you.